Well, good morning, MBC. Uh, we are delighted that you're joining us for a very special Mother's Day service. Uh, and I am personally honored to be joined on stage by my beautiful wife, Amanda. Welcome, sweetheart. We are glad that you are here today. Uh, we are continuing with our sermon series through the book of Philippians, and we're calling that series Choose Joy. Uh, what we're going to do today is bake some Mother's Day themes and exhortations into the message. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we'd like to share with you just a little bit about our family. Thanks, honey. Welcome, church. And what an honor it is to share God's word with you today and what he's doing in our lives. He's taught us a lot over the years. On screen, you can see a picture of the Urbig clan. Our youngest, Zoe, she's 18 months old, and she's full of energy and conversation. Just ask her. And our oldest, Jenna, she's, she'll be seven in the fall, and she's finishing kindergarten, and she's super sweet and very sensitive. And our, many of you know our middle child, Josiah. He'll be three in June, and he was born with an unknown genetic condition, and God is helping us walk through that and showing us what it looks like to follow him. And these are all the ones who call me mom. Um, we want to first welcome all the moms out there, and we want you to know that we value you and we see you. The carnation we received is a reminder that you are beautifully made in the image of God. We want to acknowledge up front that Mother's Day is a mixed bag of emotions for so many. First, it's a day of joy. You, if you're a mom, we celebrate what God is doing in and through you. And no one can replace you in your child's life. Second, Mother's Day can be a day of pain. Perhaps you, your relationship with your mom is strained, or your mother has passed away, or you may be someone who has experienced the loss of a child, either through miscarriage or some other circumstance. We ourselves have gone through three miscarriages. We want you to know that we grieve with you. And third, Mother's Day can be a reminder of unfulfilled desires. Some in the audience desperately want to be moms, but you're struggling with infertility. You may still be single. Or some of you know the joy of being spiritual mothers to so many. It's difficult when our desires do not match our reality. And Mother's Day is a reminder of what you're walking through. However you've walked in here today, though, we want you to know that God sees you, and he's doing something in your life. He wants to shape you and use you for his glory. That is, that is what we'd like to talk about today. So with that in mind, we'd like to give you an image to hold on to throughout the message, and that's the image of a glass right here. I brought a couple with me today. Now, a glass is a really interesting image. It's solid. It's sturdy. Uh, it can hold substances inside of it, like water to nourish us. A uh, glass can even be part of a celebration. Cheers. There you go. <laughs> but where did glass come from? Does anybody out there know how glass was formed? And if you don't, I am going to tell you. Uh, believe it or not, glass <clears throat> is made from liquid sand. So you can make glass by heating ordinary sand until it melts and turns into a liquid. And you might be asking, well, how hot does it need to get? Uh, hotter than the beach, in case you were wondering, so your feet are safe this summer, no matter how much the sun comes out. Uh, sand melts at the mind-blowing temperature of 1,700 degrees Celsius. Uh, that is 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit for you non-Europeans out there. Uh, can somebody out there say, that's hot? Yeah, that's that hot. is hot, yes. Now, here's what's crazy. When the molten sand cools, it doesn't go back to its original form. It undergoes a complete transformation and becomes an entirely different structure. In other words, liquid sand 
then turns into glass. Now, you may have noticed that glass is pretty popular. And why is that? Well, it's transparent. You can see through it. Um, it's heat resistant. You can always put glassware in the dishwasher. Uh, it's sturdy. You can put things inside of it, kind of like a vase filled with Mother's Day flowers. There you go. See? I did not forget. Happy Mother's Day. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, honey. Well, we offer this image at the beginning because it's a picture of what God does through us in the practice, process of sanctification. When the storms of life come, when the fire surrounds us, our lives feel like liquid sand. It feels like we're lost, without form, in a dark world. It's raw, it needs work, it's rough around the edges, and at sometimes it even feels dangerous. And the truth is, as moms and as followers of Christ, we live in a world operating at 1,700 degrees Celsius. So the question is, do you sense that? Now, many of us understand the heat of today's world, and some of us might even be saying it feels hotter than that. What are the challenges of the 1,700-degree world? Well, just look at the articles posted on your newsfeed. Um, I came across an interesting article this week entitled, How to Raise AI-Resilient Kids. And I said, what does that even mean, right? In the midst of everything else, I got to teach my kids about robots and chat GPT and all of that. Uh, some of you don't even know what that is. How about general entertainment choices? You probably feel you need to screen, if you're younger, if your kids are younger, you need to screen everything your child watches today. And you just say, it is exhausting. Or maybe you're facing pressure at work to conform with beliefs that you don't agree with. If you are in high school, you may feel constant pressure to be like everyone else. As a mom, I know we worry about things like family appearance, school choices, and keeping up with busy schedules. Here are a few memes that capture the reality. Let's go through them. Any moms feel like this? This is something that I probably look like I'm doing all the time, and when my eyes get really big, that's what I'm doing. Next slide. So this one is one of my favorites. It's perfect, and it has the perfect illustration, and it's probably something kids do when they're tired. Usually this hits our house around 5 p.m., and everyone's just done for the day, but we still have three more hours to go. Next slide. This is my favorite because this is what I do in my head every single day at 8 p.m. That hits home, doesn't it? Does it feel like you're living life at 1,700 degrees? In the midst of the dark world of the first century, a world in many ways was darker than our own, Paul writes this to the Philippian Christians. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul knew what it was like to face persecution, and he knew what it was like to, run, to be ran out of town by a mob, and he knew what it was like to be shipwrecked. He knew all about the 1,700-degree world. Despite everything, he tells his spiritual children this. That's part of the process. Work out your salvation and rejoice. But that is a very countercultural message for today. And so what we'd like to do is talk to you, whether you're a mom a teenager, a professional, a seeker, or simply a devoted follower of Christ. The message of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18, where we've come to today, it's the same. We must follow, we must allow Jesus Christ to turn us into liquid sand and then reshape us as he sees fit. The question is how? How do we face this 1700 degree world with joy? 
Well, Paul is going to show us three action steps, and they're simply this. We have to choose dependent obedience. We have to embrace radical contentment. And then finally, we have to savor the sweet sacrifice. And what he's going to say is when we do those three steps, when we allow them to work in tandem, that's when the Holy Spirit starts to shape our hearts into a moldable, transparent, sturdy glass for the glory of God. That's when we start to shine. So let's pray before we look at each one of those in turn. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we we thank you for your word. We thank you specifically for this letter to the Philippians that is teaching us so much, Lord, so much over the last month and as we continue through it, Lord. We ask today that you would just soften our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would meet us where we are and that we would leave today changed and transformed and with more fire for the gospel, Lord. Help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so first, first we must choose dependent obedience. Now the question is, what does dependent obedience look like? Well, let's start with the obedience part. True confessions, how many of you find it easy to obey? (laughs) How many of you wake up in the morning and say, yes, I get to be obedient today? Very few. Let's be honest, we struggle with obedience. In fact, more often our heart reflects our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And we may not like it, but we are, we are just drawn to rebellion. It's so much more fun to break the rules and ask for forgiveness later on. And that's evident even in our earliest years. So my favorite story of rebellion in our kids is when Josiah is in my home in the evening time, and this is his scooting time. So he scoots around, and if I don't lock my pantry door, he grabs something with his hands really hard, and he scoots away and looks back at me and laughs. (laughs) He laughs at the top of his lungs at me because he got away with something he wasn't supposed to do, and he knows it. And that's rebellion in the cutest form. The nose and the uh uh-uh. Rebellion is ingrained in the human heart. Friends, we don't like to be told what to do. Paul knows this, and he writes to the Philippians as a spiritual father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Notice two words. First, look at the word therefore. We learned last week that we need to ask, what is it therefore? We learned that Paul is linking this section back to the hymn about Jesus in verses 5 through 11. What did Jesus do? He was obedient to the Father's plan and went to the cross. Second, without coincidence, notice the word obeyed. He is commending them for their obedience. The Philippians have strived to be obedient to Christ when Paul is present and when he is absent. Obedience is the key to our growth process. But Paul doesn't stop there. He urges them to keep going. Look at the second half of the verse. He says this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All right, so now we're getting into some, some theological waters here. Because you're asking, what does, what does it mean to work out your salvation? Some of you are saying, well, I thought we were saved by grace. What is this whole working out thing about? A few points need to be mentioned here. First, <clears throat> Paul is raising the tension between what theologians call justification and sanctification. Yes, if you know Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to him, if you've trusted him for salvation, you're saved. You are justified before God through the finished work of Christ on the cross. But there's also a sense that you are in the process of being 
saved, and that is sanctification. We are being conformed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ over the course of a lifetime. And that, at least in some sense, is what Paul's talking about here. Now, secondly, we should understand what Paul means by salvation. Work out your salvation. Now, on the one hand, he's talking about individual salvation. But on the other hand, he seems to be saying there's a communal element to this, given the context and theme of unity in the church. And so working out your salvation means because Christ's redemption has been applied to us through the work of the Spirit and the cross, that should produce a change of lifestyle within the community of God. The fruit of the Spirit should be evident. And all this should be done with fear and trembling, which sounds kind of ominous. Now, truthfully, a better rendering would be fear expressed in trembling, which is it's conveying this attitude of humility and submission to God that we should have. This respect for God would then translate over into respect for others who are made in the image of God. Now, perhaps, again, the image of the glass is really helpful here because what he's getting at is this working out your salvation is like, is like that formation process with the glass. So the Holy Spirit applies salvation. He awakens our heart. Uh, but then, then our hearts need to be reshaped and brought into conformity with the example of, with, to the example of Christ. Our attitude changes to humility and submission to God. So the Old Testament prophet Malachi spoke about this in chapter 3 of his book. He talks about the refiner's fire, which, uh, which was a process where all the impurities of metal were, were removed through the, when they were placed in the fire. What does he say? Verse 3. He says, he sits as a refiner, this is God, and purifier of silver. He will purify and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men and women who will bring offerings in righteousness. So God is doing a work in our hearts. He is remolding us so that we live obedient, dependent lives on our Savior. Now here's the interesting part. Is it all our effort? Look at what Paul says in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God works in us. He's sovereign. And that's why we say we need to choose not just obedience, but dependent obedience. We rely on God's power in us. The Greek verb for works in means to put one's capabilities into operation. Commentator Walter Henson says it this way, all the capabilities of God are in operation, active and effective in the work of believers. We cannot do it all on our own. We need the heat of the Holy Spirit to form us. God's work, then, is the cause of our work, to will and to act, to fulfill his good purpose. What's interesting is the Greek word for work in this verse is the same as the previous. Because of God's gracious work in our lives, we now work out our salvation to fulfill his good purpose. Or put another way, we're called to be obedient, but we are, we are, but we are dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives who shapes us into the image of Jesus Christ. So we have a role in obedience, but understand this. Uh, you don't have as much control as you think you do. God is sovereign over all things. He is still working in our hearts and in this world. And practically speaking, what that means is don't undervalue your role. 
but don't overthink it. For example. So we as moms have to fight against our savior complex. I said it. We think if we get our kids into the right school or play with the right friends or teach them a skill by a certain time, that things will be better. But we're not in charge. God is. So when you start thinking, am I doing the right thing? Did I make the right choice? Are they going to be okay? Trust the one who is in charge and spend time growing in that. And that's true for all Christians, right? Work out your salvation was both a command for individuals and it has corporate ramifications for the church. And this is all in the context of unity. So if you're not choosing dependent obedience to God, there's going to be rifts in your marriage, in your family, and certainly in the church, as we spoke about last week. So choose obedience and be dependent upon the work of God in your heart. His work propels our work. But in reality, I think we disobey because we're not content with what God has called us to. And that is point number two, embrace radical contentment. Now, I'd like to act like the glass for just a moment and be a bit transparent. Um, I struggle with contentment. I'm always thinking about the next thing I have to do, uh, the next mountain I got to climb, the next achievement I got to reach, and I suspect I am not the only one who struggles with that. I'm a product of the culture because the world is always telling us we need bigger, better, faster. We need more, more, more. To be content in today's world is really to be radical. Again, the image of the glass is helpful here. Imagine if the sand resisted the heat. What would happen? It would never change because it's the heat that changes it. Likewise, God puts us through challenges and suffering, and he allows us to experience the heat so that, when, so that we will change for our good. If we resist the work God is doing when he shapes us like the glass, how will we grow? Paul now starts to get very practical. After laying the foundation in verses 12 through 13, he gets straight to the point in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Can someone say, ouch? Turn to your neighbor and say, ouch. <coughs> Why do we grumble and complain? Because we're not content with what we have. Now notice this is an imperative. It is a command. Paul's not giving options here. He says the way you work out your salvation, the way you display a changed life in Christ is by what? Don't grumble and don't argue. And not just sometimes. He means all the time. The phrase do everything means every part of your life should be shaped by the gospel. What are the marks? All right, so let's look at the grumbling. Without grumbling, he says. Now ask yourself for a moment, what is the longest time I have ever gone without grumbling? Now, the Greek word for grumbling is gnismos. In fact, let's say that together. Gnismos, right? Don't gnismos is what he's saying here. Uh, this word refers to whispering complaints, talking in secret against somebody, or making negative comments about somebody behind their backs. And so it's echoing descriptions of Israel wandering in the desert where they were complaining about their leaders, Moses and Aaron. Uh, the Philippians probably have been complaining about their suffering, the hard times they're going through. Are there any grumblers out there? Yeah. Can I get an amen? Yes. <laughs> so some in the audience may be saying, um, objection? What do you mean we can't grumble? Isn't there a time and a place? 
Yeah, we agree. There's a time to share your frustrations with people you trust. Life doesn't always go with the way that we want it to. And however, notice that grumbling in this context always refers to complaints made in secret about somebody else. Words that tear others down, even whispered privately, should be avoided. But I get it. It's easy to want to grumble about motherhood. In the early years, there is not a second of our day that is not taken, else, taken up by somebody else's wants and needs. The rare moment of silence is quickly followed by a scream, a cry, or a loud, Mom! It is physically exhausting, and we run on empty 24-7 with very little opportunity to refuel. And it doesn't stop when they get older. We just trade physical exhaustion for emotional exhaustion. As we worry and wonder where our kids are and if they are making wise decisions. Second, without arguing, the word for argue specifically refers to divisive rhetoric. Division is different from constructive criticism. Some of us like to be professional arguers. We will continue on to win the fight at any cost. Commentator Walter Henson writes this. When Christian conversations is laced with complaints and personal attacks, Christians have lost their distinctive quality as the children of God in a world characterized by that same kind of negative tone. Are you grumbling or arguing in any part of your life? I would invite you to ask why. Maybe it's because you're not getting what you want. Like we spoke about last week, maybe you just have to be right. If your grumbling and arguing are preventing unity, it's not what God desires. We grumble and complain because we're not content. We need to embrace radical contentment. So what is the purpose of resisting grumbling and arguing? Look at verse 15. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So he's saying too often we act like the world and don't reflect our heavenly father even to those we love. Now, is that glorifying to God? I think he's saying no. He is working in us so that we're going to be different because God wants us to stand out. At the beginning of the message, we said we live in this 1,700-degree world, and it's a dark world that needs light. It needs love. It needs followers of Christ, moms and dads and kids and churches to stand out the world needs to see something different than the hateful grumbling and arguing that are so commonplace in every sphere of life today. So Paul offers an image to illustrate this. His argument up to this point has basically gone like this. Hey, work out your salvation. Uh, don't grumble. Become blameless. And then look at the second half of verse 15. He says, then, then, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. If you do all that, you're going to shine. What a beautiful image. The stars in the night sky. Now, for years, I lived in Denver, Colorado. I went to seminary there. Amanda and I met there. And one of the things I loved about Colorado was the mountains. And if you've been there and you've gone camping and you've gone out to the back country, you know you can get far enough away from the, the light pollution from the city lights that it's completely dark. And then you look up and you see the sky and you realize, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe there was so many stars. There's so many. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to be stars shining in the darkness. Church, are we shining in a dark world? 
God wants us to shine. Our 1,700-degree world is not so different from the time of Daniel. He knew what it was like to be thrown into the den of lions, and he knew what it was like to choose God over the world. Listen to what the prophet Daniel writes to the people of God. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel envisions a group of people standing strong even in the most difficult times of life. But it's not just Daniel. Jesus himself calls us to shine in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Why do we shine? So that others may see there is something different about you. So that others will see you are content in Jesus that you are living a life in response to him, and then God will receive glory. How do we shine? Or, I'm sorry, why would we shine? And then how do we shine? Paul offers two actions about that. As you hold firmly to the word of life, he says, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So the question is, do you want radical contentment? Paul says, again, there's two actions that you have to get deep down in your spiritual muscles. The first one, let me summarize, is this. you got to grasp the good news. You have to grasp the good news. That's what he means when he says you have to hold tightly to the word of life. Because when the storms of life come, what are you going to cling to? Your own strength or the promises of the word of God? Will you cling to the beautiful truth about Jesus and his sacrifice for you. But then second, he says, you got to anticipate the end game. Anticipate the end game. So this verse talks about the day of Christ's return. Right now, we are living in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And the 1700 degree world will one day pass away and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Everything will be beautiful. That's the end game. And if we keep our eyes focused there, we'll know everything's going to be okay. And when you do that, you'll be more content. Now, I don't want to skip over that word boast because, you know, last week we talked about this, avoiding this idea of the humble brag. Uh, some of you may ask, is Paul changing his mind here? Like, what happened? I don't think so at all. What he's, what he's doing is he's emphasizing that all our boasting should be done in Christ, in what he has done. And that's a point he's going to emphasize when we get to chapter 3 of Philippians. Again, it's like the glass. It begins as liquid sand. But after going through the fire, after being reshaped, it becomes transparent. Do you know what that means? It means people can see through it. That is what God calls us to be. He wants people to see through us to what is inside, Christ himself. He wants them to ask to he wants them to seek a heart radically content in their savior. So I will ask, when you when people look at you, what do they see? Do they see you or do they see Jesus? When our son Josiah was born, I felt this overwhelming need to share our story and hoping that it would help encourage or bring someone to Jesus. I knew that was what I was supposed to do. I never even thought twice about that. When I started our Facebook group, I never realized what it would turn into. And that was three years ago. And today, hundreds of people have been touched by a story. And by God's grace, I seek to live 
the transparent life of a mom following Jesus. I get to pour out into others the fragrant aroma that is Jesus. So how do we face the 1700 world with joy? You choose dependent obedience, you embrace radical contentment, and when you do that, it's then you, that you can thirdly savor the sweet sacrifice. Savor the sweet sacrifice of Christ, but also the sacrifice he calls each of us to. Now you may remember in Romans chapter 12, Paul writing to the Roman church, verses 1 and 2, he encourages us to become living sacrifices for Christ. And to conclude this section in Philippians, Paul shows us what that looks like in verse 17. What does he say? He says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So he's using several vivid images right here. First, look at the, look at the phrase poured out. Poured out, that, that image that he's getting at there is the suffering of the ultimate sacrifice. Paul is saying that he wants to pour out his life for the ministry like Jesus poured out his life for his people. The phrase brings us back again to that hymn that we looked at last week in verses 5 to 11. Because of our sin, Jesus Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died the atoning death on the cross. Literally, he poured himself out for us. He emptied himself for the mission. Do you recognize that? Do you praise God for that? Has it changed your life? Paul Paul takes it a step further and then applies it to us. Look at that second phrase, drink offering. That is a powerful image. It's a powerful image. Paul is evoking an Old Testament scene right here. It's the image of an ancient sanctuary where morning and evening people would come and they would bring their burnt offerings to the altar of God. And then what would happen is it would be accompanied by a drink offering And this is what would happen. Before the fire on that animal sacrifice was lit, a priest would pour wine over the animal sacrifice to enhance the pleasing aroma to the Lord. Numbers 28. So so do you hear that? What Paul is saying is Jesus poured out his life for us. We need to pour out our lives for him. And the more we pour out our lives in sacrificial service to God and the gospel, he says the sweeter it's going to smell. Does your sacrifice smell sweet? Can you savor it? In other words, when people, when people want to keep smelling it like, the, the, like, the, like a beautiful bouquet of flowers, is giving your life to Jesus and trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for you something you savor every day? Because here's the biggest question. Where is God calling you to pour out your life? Is there an area that God is saying he's calling you to give to him, but, but you're grumbling, you're arguing with him. Don't resist him. Savor that sweet sacrifice to the glory of God. Sacrifice is hard, but it's worth it. It's how God shapes us into that beautiful glass we've been talking about. It's how we walk through the fire. And while this applies to everyone, I'll speak to the moms just for a moment There's something that I've learned. We can complain about the challenges facing us, or we can recognize that God is doing something in us. God calls us to work out our salvation without grumbling or arguing, and he wants us to find radical contentment in him. 
Let me give you one final image. So God shapes us like the glass. It's transparent and it's sturdy and it can be filled. Then he fills us with his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit fills us with joy and his fruit. Then he calls out, he calls us to pour out ourselves through sacrifice and faith. So that the aroma of our sacrifice will be so sweet that the world will see it. What a powerful image. What happens, when that happens, what will we experience? Joy. Paul says he wants to rejoice with all of you. Rejoice is a command throughout the letter. Again, Paul calls us to choose joy in all circumstances. Rejoice is a command. Choose joy. Don't grumble. Don't argue. Choose joy. Rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice when life doesn't go your way. And rejoice when parenting is hard. Rejoice when life is good. Rejoice. Can I tell you three powerful words that are going to change your life? I choose joy. Let's say that together. I choose joy. Don't settle for less. Don't settle for less. So how can you find joy in a 1,700-degree world? Our lives should be marked by light, love, and liquid sand. God commands us to shine like stars in a dark world. He wants us to love him above all else. And for that to happen, we must allow him to shape our hearts like liquid sand. For that to happen, we have to choose dependent obedience. We have to embrace radical contentment. And when we savor the sweet sacrifice of God, he calls us and he empowers us. So as the worship team comes back on stage, let's leave you with the final words of Paul's section. Philippians 2.18 says this, So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And what he's calling all of us to right here is a partnership in rejoicing. How? Live a life marked by light, love, and liquid sand. Light, do you shine bright in the dark sky like he told us? The fire of God needs to shape your heart. Become light as you reflect the light of the world. Love. Do I love God more than anything else? Fall in love with the God who made you. And then liquid sand. Am I allowing God to shape me into his dependent disciple who lives for his glory? Become liquid sand as you work out your salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we can show a dark world how to rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the command to rejoice. Help us to recognize that, Lord. It's not an option. You call us to rejoice because we have a reason to rejoice. Because you 
came in the flesh to die for us, to offer us eternal life. And then you tell us today, there's the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. So whatever we're walking through right now, Lord, yes, it may be hard, but help us to grasp the gospel. Help us to anticipate the end game. And maybe that be something that captures our hearts. May we be light in a dark world. May we love you above all else. And may our hearts be the liquid sand you were teaching us about today. We give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.